long before the coronavirus pandemic began, the U.S. was facing another public health crisis. Like COVID-19, its spread is invisible and it impacts millions of Americans. I just fell into the deepest, darkest place that I've ever been in my entire life. The crisis is childhood trauma. We're talking about experiences in a kid's life that can leave lasting physical or emotional scars, like abuse and neglect. There is absolutely a powerful connection between the ways in which I, I felt about myself and what had happened to me earlier in my life. Even before the pandemic, at least 60% of Americans had at least one potentially traumatic childhood experience. Now, things are seemingly getting worse. Experts fear trauma is going unchecked behind closed doors. Not everybody is safe at home, and not every home is able to provide the same supports and meet children's fear and anxiety. So we have a lot of children who are experiencing more fear, more uncertainty, more hunger. My colleagues at the NewsHour have been reporting on this issue for more than a year as part of a series called Invisible Scars, America's Childhood Trauma Crisis. In this episode, we look at the trauma kids are experiencing, how the pandemic is likely making this crisis even worse, and what we can do to help them. If we do not act thoughtfully and inclusively, we could see the effects of this pandemic on the health of a generation. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm William Brangham. Hi, Kat. Hi, William. Hey, Laura. Hey, William. How's it going? Why don't I just... I spoke with special correspondent Kat Wise and digital reporter Laura Santanam, who have been looking into this crisis of childhood trauma. Laura, help us understand, why did you all start reporting on this issue in the first place? You know, years before COVID-19 came along, we were reporting on the opioid crisis, on mass shootings, school shootings, you know, you name it. And we're struck by how often kids were involved with these just, you know, deeply troubling tragedies. We were also, you know, constantly asking how these stories would impact the lives of these children as they grew older. And, and just as often, we wanted to know what could be done to help them and prevent further harm. For adults, for kids, these are life-changing events oftentimes, and we, we wanted to know why and how these kinds of things can have such a lasting impact. So, Kat, just some basic terminology. When we say childhood trauma, what specifically do we mean, and, and how big of a problem are we talking about? Yeah, so when we talk about trauma, that is a very broad term, and it can mean different things to different people. But what we're talking about here are experiences early in life that can be so severe that they can leave a physical or emotional toll on people. And today, most experts, when they're talking about this issue, what they refer to are adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. That's a term we'll be using a lot in this conversation. ACEs, like A-C-E-S. Yes, ACEs, which stand for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And we first learned about ACEs in a landmark study by Kaiser Permanente and CDC researchers in the late 90s. And what they did is they looked at 17,000 patients' histories with 10 potentially traumatic uh, early life events that included physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, exposure to domestic violence, divorce, 
and parental incarceration. So those were some of the 10 original ACEs, but that list has since been expanded to include things like exposure to racism and community violence. So the Kaiser study helped shape our collective understanding of of the impact that those events can have on kids. But my understanding is it went well beyond that, too. That's right. So what those researchers from Kaiser Permanente and the CDC did is they correlated those ACEs with health issues in adulthood. And that's the key here. They were looking at what happened to these individuals later on in life. And the findings, William, were a huge aha moment um, for many in the medical world. And that's because the study showed that early adversity in life can, in fact, have lifelong health consequences. And we're not just talking about mental health impacts. So having four or more ACEs is associated with significantly increased risks for five out of the 10 leading causes of death in the U.S. And I don't think that's often you know, really discussed. Um, and some of those long-term health impacts include ischemic heart disease, stroke, and chronic lung disease. So the research is showing that, that an event that happened in childhood echoes uh, long after the event itself might have stopped into adulthood. That's right. And the reason we see those kinds of health impacts later on in life is because when the body is stressed, it releases stress hormones. And prolonged activation of those stress hormones can actually cause things like wear and tear um, uh, on the arteries. It can cause structural and functional changes in the brain, and it can impact the immune and hormonal system. So there's a wide range of, of possible health impacts from prolonged activation of our stress system. I think it's also important to acknowledge that not everyone is impacted by traumatic events in the same way. Some people may not have lingering impacts. But what we do know is that millions of Americans have experienced adversity in childhood and do have lingering impacts. Kat, you said millions of Americans. Can you break down those numbers a little bit more? Yeah, so what we know is just over 60% of adults in the U.S. have had at least one ACE, and 15% have had four or more. Uh, We also know that women and some communities of color are at much greater risk for experiencing significant trauma. But this is an issue that impacts every community in this country, um, folks from different you know, socioeconomic and racial backgrounds. This is an issue for everyone. And another really key point about adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, is that it's very costly. Uh, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the economic and social costs to families, communities, and society totals hundreds of billions of dollars each year. I mean, those are just really uh, remarkable numbers. Um, turning to you, Laura, we know that the, the pandemic itself has amplified all kinds of existing problems in the country. Is it similar with this issue that during the pandemic, that childhood trauma is itself getting worse? The thing about this pandemic is that it's, we all know it's far from over. Um, what that means is we're still very much in the process of telling how great a toll that COVID has taken. You know, outside of who's gotten sick, how many hospital beds there are, who's unfortunately died. I mean, we're looking not only at that, but also the ripple effects of this pandemic. For months, we've been hearing increasing reports of domestic violence, substance use, relapse for those who've been in recovery, suicide, uh, countless mental health issues. Um, And there's survey data that's also supporting what we're hearing. 
Earlier this year, Kaiser Family Foundation released a survey that said more than half of Americans said that worry and stress linked to COVID-19 has affected their mental health already. And some experts say that coming out of this pandemic, mental health issues will be the greatest pre-existing health condition in this country. I mean, I have to imagine there's also, as much as the data is coming in and fits and starts, there's got to be so much that we still don't know. Absolutely. I mean, you know, with, with respect to kids, you know, it's only natural to think, well, how are schools handling this? How is the education system looking at this point? And the a, a truly troubling thing that a researcher told me earlier this week is no one is tracking, you know, how many kids nationwide are not in school because of the coronavirus pandemic. The best picture that we have is at the district level. So what does that mean when we're trying to figure out how policymakers should be moving, what what decisions they should be making with, you know, on funding? That means that we have a patchwork of thousands of districts from across the country, and it's coming in, in, in bits and pieces at a time. And it's not just education data, it's everything. And what's particularly startling is the fact that child welfare data is significantly delayed. Earlier this year, experts were telling me that there's up to a 15-month lag between when something bad happens to a kid and when we know about those instances just, you know, in the aggregate nationwide. And that's during the best of circumstances, not when there's a pandemic going on. And Kat, I know you heard this as part of your reporting as well. Yeah, absolutely. What really stood out for me in in doing this reporting is hearing directly from young people about how they have been impacted during these times. We went to Chicago, and there we spoke to a group of teenagers, uh, Tia Ford, Jawan Nix, and Omarion James, who live in Chicago's Austin neighborhood. That's a low-resource, predominantly African-American community that sees more homicides uh, than any other area in the city. And this is a community that's already experienced a lot of trauma for for generations. Um, The teens we spoke to, all three of them had lost at least one family member to gun violence. And here's what they had to say to me about how they've been impacted during the pandemic. It impacted us in so many ways. Like the list could go on and on. Like what? In what ways? I lost my granddad to COVID. How have you been impacted by it? This this COVID came around my senior year. You know, that's important. So I didn't even get to go back to school. I had to do the e-learning and I don't and I didn't like it. Not a big fan. No, I didn't like it here. I almost feel because of the e-learning. <laughs> it's just like sometimes, you know, you have a day where the Wi-Fi wanna run slow or then you sometimes you can't hear the teachers, or sometimes they can't hear you. It's way more difficult than being in the classroom. I couldn't go nowhere, so I was in the house all day, like just playing a video game. And that was like, that was so stressful because I'm still a kid, so I still want to be outside, be able to be with my friends. But and then I wasn't able to play basketball. I had a, uh, Those teens' stories highlight um, something we know to be true about both the pandemic and childhood trauma, and that is the fact that these issues are disproportionately impacting communities of color and low-income populations, you know, far more than other groups. In Chicago, during our reporting, we learned that there has been a significant uptick in suicide deaths among young Black residents there. Now, it's a small amount of data at this point, but it is something that the city's public health officials told us that they're tracking and, and taking notice of. And in general, we know that Black children in America are more likely than white children to have at least three ACEs. And there was real concern amongst people we talked to 
the things like increased food insecurity, housing issues, um, loss of jobs are disproportionately impacting and causing stress for families of color that have you know, been dealing with a lot of stress and trauma for generations. I spoke with Donald Dew, who's the president and CEO of Habilitative Systems, which is a longstanding nonprofit on Chicago's West Side. He's African-American, and he highlighted for me some of the ways that his community has been impacted. It's at a point right now where people are even more fearful. You know, a lot of the social outlets that we've been able to experience that have been uplifting and beneficial for our children have now been removed. So this creates another level of trauma and stress. And, and guess what? The parents don't always know how to deal with the trauma and stress that their children are going through simply as a result of not being able to go to school. Laura, as Kat was saying, we know that the pandemic is already affecting vulnerable people disproportionately. But obviously, this is not just Chicago. It's very much a national issue, too. That's exactly right. And it was happening before the pandemic even started. There are long-lasting critical barriers and equity issues linked to internet access and technology in this country for so many households. And we know that when you compound that in isolation with stress, such as you know joblessness, housing insecurity, food insecurity, the risk for trauma ramps up for all involved. In the course of my reporting, you know, I spoke to a special education teacher in San Diego, and she told me that one of her students has been without internet access for nine months. You know, you can imagine how difficult it can be for, for that child, for that school, for that teacher to all stay connected, and how disruptive this has been for that child's education, for their routine, for their social emotional development. Just looking at that child and knowing that we don't know how many kids are in that same position, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that's unfolding with each day of lost opportunity and growth. And Kat, we know schools are often uh, considered a safe space for kids and a place where adults who are in that school can pick up on early signs of trauma. But with so many of these kids not in school, that's also got to be making the problem worse. You're right. That, that is a big concern. Teachers and counselors are often the ones that are reporting instances of child maltreatment. And many of the experts we spoke to uh, raised this issue, including Hope Bray. She is a social worker at Reed Intermediate School in Newtown, Connecticut. Now, of course, you'll remember that Newtown is where the horrific shooting occurred at Sandy Hook Elementary School eight years ago. Hope was part of a group of counselors and therapists who started helping the families in that community and the children in the immediate aftermath of the shooting and have continued to support them in the years since. Hope told me that she and her colleagues feel like they've been making good progress treating childhood trauma in their community, but she's really worried about how the pandemic has upended those efforts. The unfortunate fact is not everybody is safe at home and not every home is able to provide the same supports and meet children's fear and anxiety. So we have a lot of children who are experiencing more fear, more uncertainty, more hunger. And, and that's not just in cities, you know, that's everywhere. Like you said, you know, many of these children are still at home. Mm -hmm. you, you don't see them every day. Does that also worry you? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it keeps most of us up nights. I'm so grateful for what the safety um, in the home I can provide for my children, but I can't provide that for my students. What you're describing are so many compounding problems, one on top of the other. Um, 
Are there any silver linings to this pandemic when it comes to dealing with childhood trauma? Yeah, so there is some good news here. As you can imagine, many communities around the country have faced a lack of mental health care resources for a long time, even before this pandemic. But telehealth really caught on during the pandemic. And we heard from several mental health care providers during our reporting who told us that they're quite optimistic about the long-term beneficial impacts of telehealth after the pandemic ends. One of the mental health care professionals we talked to said that some people who have experienced trauma, including kids, have a hard time opening up in person. And they can actually open up more when they're not in a room with someone and they're connecting with them over a computer screen, for example. We also know that it can reduce some of the barriers that people face when they're trying to access mental health care resources. So, for example, in rural parts of the country and in Montana, where we were, sometimes people have to drive hours to get their kids and, and themselves to mental health care appointments. And telehealth can definitely reduce that kind of barrier. Okay, so telehealth is one silver lining. Um, Laura, for, for those who are listening and wondering what they might be able to do, are there things people can do to help protect kids? Well, first, we need to make sure resources are getting to kids and families who need them most when they need them most. You know, to do that, we've got to take a triaged approach. What experts have been telling me is that we need to focus on kids that we've been talking about this whole time. Those are the kids who, frankly, you know, they go to school and that's where they find most of their nutrition, health and well-being services. Right. Um, you know, child development experts have told me that the most critical resource a child can have, you know, when we're thinking about resilience and bouncing back during just devastating times, is having one trusted, committed, reliable adult in their life. You know, that could be a parent, a grandparent, just any caregiver who is a constant presence and nurturing um, for them right now. That's going to be that child's shock absorber against everything that we're in the middle of right now. Okay. We could all obviously use some shock absorbers in life. Um, what about how you orient your day? What, what are the things that those people can do for kids? Sure. Well, I, you know, one strategy that, that came up time and again is, you know, the three R's. So reassurance, routine, regulation. You know, what does reassurance mean in this is, instance? For little kids, all they want to know is that the grownups in their lives are doing everything that they can to make sure everyone they love is going to be okay. You know, older kids, they're probably a little more in tune with what's going on in the world. They're hearing rumors, they're he reading news reports about how this pandemic is moving forward. Um, and they're actually ready for age-appropriate conversations to help them understand, you know, what's being done to protect them and everyone they love. Talking about routine, anyone with a kid understands that that is fundamental for so much. Um, but, you know, what that means here is, you know, there's a time to sleep, a time to wake up, a time to learn and a time to play. And I know it's really hard. I've got kids, so um, I, it doesn't always work in my house, but we try um, to the degree possible, preserve those schedules. It helps a child mentally prepare for what's, you know, what they can expect. So when there's so much that's uncertain right now and it's beyond everybody's control, if a child has a routine that largely remains intact, it, it just goes so far to help them remain calm and improve quality of life. When we talk about regulation, that that's, you know, fostering coping mechanisms. And it helps a kid, you know, if, if that means exercising, going for a walk, deep breathing, whatever helps them deal with big feelings. It also helps them adjust in shaky situations and, you know, relate to others despite the distance where so many of us are confronted with right now. 
And of course, the adults who are doing all of that care, the shock absorbers, they have to do some of this for themselves too. That's absolutely right. One of the experts I spoke to said, you know, in this moment, parents are heroes because they're being asked to do the impossible. So in order to continue to be there for their kids, caregivers have got to remember to practice self-care and, you know, be there for themselves. If you're feeling overwhelmed Remember, that's natural, especially during times like this. And remember to listen to that. Don't don't ignore it. Don't try and push it down because that doesn't do anybody any favors, not you, not your kids. If you're able to get up and safely step away, please do that when you're feeling overwhelmed. You know, walk into the next room, you know, count to 10, take a breath, make a cup of tea, um, you know, call a friend. You know, this is so important because if you're not feeling well, you can't take care of others. This need for caregivers just to be really kind to themselves in this difficult moment is something that pediatrician Dr. Moira Silaji said to me. She's an, an expert on childhood trauma and resilience. Here, let's, uh, let's give it a listen. Parents keep their children at the center of what they're doing and mm-hmm. what they're thinking. And you almost can't go wrong as a parent when you do that. And even if you feel as a parent that maybe you're not doing the best possible job in the universe, you're doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of responding to your child with love and affection and trying to give your child what they need Mm -hmm. and just not expecting yourself to be perfect. When, when I heard her words, you know, it was a Friday night, I'd just done this interview, but I needed to read those words over and over again because, frankly, like so many parents right now, there's a lot of times where I feel like I'm not measuring up, where you know, just have these really vulnerable moments, and I'm wondering, how are my kids going to be reflecting on this 10, 20 years down the line? Laura, I really relate to what you were just saying because I have two elementary school-aged kids myself. They're in a room right next to us as I'm talking to you because they're home for remote schooling. And there's so many days when I'm wondering, you know, how are they doing? How am I measuring up as a parent? And I have to say, it's just really comforting to hear, you know, what those experts were saying to you about um, just knowing we're all trying to do our best and, and just take it a day at a time. I think there's parents all over the country nodding their heads in agreement. Kat and Laura, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. To watch our series and learn about resources for childhood trauma, visit our website, pbs.org newshour. This episode was reported and produced by Jaywan Che, Sam Lane, Leah Nagy, Rachel Welford, and Vika Aronson. It was edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Fact-checking by Maya Lene Bura. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. Thanks for listening. <laughs>